This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello again, my friend, and welcome into another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. I'm glad to join you, especially in this time. I mean, I know you need something to distract you more than ever, and uh, I mean, (laughs) whatever is out there, I'm sure you're just gobbling it up as it comes because, uh, I mean, none of us have ever had this much free time just sitting at home before but it's it's not really free time that's that enjoyable because you kind of feel like you're in prison you know what i mean i mean i don't want to compare sitting at home and want being able to watch tv and still order food and stuff i want to care that compare that to prison but i mean it's the closest to kind of being locked down that many of us will ever be so it's just very strange so anyway i'm glad to bring you the show always but definitely glad to bring it to you right now because i have a feeling we all need it i need to talk into this microphone right now and you need uh something to listen to so i'm glad uh, that you choose to spend a little bit of time with us here on the stream police every single month that's when we bring you the show we've been doing it for years i am clint davis i talk about movies and television here on the program and my good friend and yours, Andy Sedlak, talks about music here on the show every single month. We're in our 78th episode here for April 2020, so I am glad you are checking it out. But don't forget, our shows are pretty much evergreen. So if there's a title that jumps out at you when you're looking at the titles of our old shows, no matter how old they may be, uh, go back and check it out because what you'll hear is just basically, you know, my thoughts on it if it's a movie or a TV show and Andy's thoughts on whatever the music topic is in that episode. So just read the description if anything jumps out at you. Don't be worried to go back to those old episodes because they're pretty much all evergreen. The only things that may date them a little bit are when we talk about when I talk about what's on Netflix and what's on Amazon that I'm recommending for you. Um, and, you know, those probably won't be. Uh, valid anymore, but still everything else is, I think, good for you to, uh, to to still listen to. It all still makes sense. All right, I urge you to go over to the Overdue Review YouTube channel if you want to see me on there talking about uh, movies. I do, uh, um, you know, not a lot of movie reviews there, but as many as I can. Uh, I'm going to try to do a couple more here before this quarantine ends. Got a couple in the in the hopper that I'm thinking of doing, a couple of lists as well that I think will be good up there. But anyway, go over to the Overdue Review YouTube channel. Give it a subscribe. Doesn't cost you a damn thing. And uh, also follow me on Instagram at Mr. Clint Davis, M-R Clint Davis. Andy is on there as well, at Andy Sedlak. 
A-N-D-Y-S-E-D-L-A-K. Um, and if you follow me on Instagram, you will see every night, every couple nights, whenever I watch a movie, you'll see what I'm watching that night. And I'd love to get your comments. I always like when somebody answers back to my story and tells me what they think of whatever it is I'm watching or asks me what I think of it because I'm not on there like giving reviews. But if you ask for one, I'll tell you what I thought of a movie. I'll tell you if I think it's worth your time. So as I said, the quarantine drags on. And what I've been doing is working my way through this lengthy list of DVDs that I have bought over the years but never watched. I think we've all done that, right? We all have this backlog of movies that we bought them because there were, you know, there's plenty of reasons why you buy a movie without ever having seen it, whether it's the director that made it that you know you like, the writer, um, an actor is usually a big reason, you know, if you just love like for me, you know, I mean, I love Al Pacino. I love Robert De Niro. Uh, I love, you know, there's a lot of actors like that for me, but those two guys jump out because there's a lot of their movies over the years, especially some of their kind of uncelebrated, like more like 70s and 80s stuff that I haven't seen before. That's not necessarily really popular or talked about a lot. And I'll pick it up because it's like, I see it for $3 at half price books. And it's like, I mean, come on, watching a Pacino movie for the first time, even if it sucks, is worth three dollars. Come on, so I gotta you know pick something up like that up. So it's uh, it's it's just one of those things. You know, you have that backlog of movies, and for whatever reason, the mood hasn't struck you that you have watched it. I have some that I've bought years ago, like six, seven years ago, that I still haven't watched because the mood just hasn't hit me yet. But I know one day I'll get around to them. But this month, during this self you know quarantine, this shelter in place thing, whatever you want to call it. I have really been whittling my way through that list. Finally, after all these years, I've watched uh, a lot of them, and I've been rediscovering some of the old favorites of mine that I have in my DVD collection that I haven't gotten around to and watched in about 10 years in a lot of cases. So um, it's been you know kind of fun just to relive some of my old favorites, see if, if they still hold up with my taste now, and to watch some of those movies that I never got around to. So on Instagram, one thing I did recently was ask uh, everyone on there who was watching my stories, I asked them what the best thing they've watched during quarantine has been so far. And I got only a few answers, but I did get a wide variety of answers, which I thought was um, telling of my friends and I thought was pretty cool. So I wanted to share those with you. So ask to everyone, what's the best thing you've watched so far in quarantine? And here are the answers I got. So Andy, first off, he wrote me an answer, which I appreciated because Andy always watches a lot of good stuff. And he told me that his favorite thing that he's watched so far has been Boys in the Hood, the seminal John Singleton movie from the early 90s. Um, absolutely one of my all-time favorite movies. Boys in the Hood is one of those that I go back to every couple years. Um, it is actually a bit of trivia here in my own life. It's the first movie that Beth, my wife, and I ever watched together. The first time I ever went over to her house and hung out with her, she was studying, and I just didn't have anything to do. So I was like, do you care if I come over? And she's like, sure. I was like, well, I was going to watch a movie, so do you care if I bring it over? So I bring over Boys in the Hood, and basically I'm just watching it. She's studying. She's sitting there and kind of watching it too. That was like pretty much our first date. Um, and I think she liked it. She still remembers it, that it was the first movie we watched, but I love that movie. It's phenomenal. It's fantastic. Lawrence Fishburne's great in it. It's just, it's a classic. It's, uh, I mean, one of those that kind of kickstarted its own little genre of kind of these, you know, 
movies that were focused on like young black men, especially, and, you know, guys that were a little bit more sensitive, especially, and were trying to get out of the, trying to avoid the lifestyle of getting into a gang, you know, rather than embracing that, not like typical gangster movies where they're, they're proud to be, you know, not like New Jack City, where it's like about guys who are just badass gangsters. It's about guys who don't want to be in that life. So anyway, Boys in the Hood's a great movie. Very sad, very good. Um, beautiful film. I love that one. So good choice, Andy. I got a message from uh, my friend Tyler also, who I know listens to the show, loves the show. And Tyler, I know, has very good taste. So I don't know if he was... Uh, I don't know if he was jerking my chain a little bit here, but anyway, he said his favorite thing that he's watched during the quarantine has been Love is Blind, which I had to look up. And because it was Tyler, I was like, what the hell is this? I got to look up what this is. So anyway, this is some Netflix. Some of you guys probably know what it is. This is some Netflix reality dating show that has Nick Lachey in it, I guess, as the host. So anything with Nick Lachey and it, it's got to be really high quality, right, Tyler? I mean, he's Cincinnati's own, so... He comes from my neck of the woods. So anyway, uh, I hope you were kidding, but I don't know. If you're not, then that makes me want to check it out because I know you have good tastes too, Tyler. So maybe does Love is Blind need to be on my list? I can't say I'm going to rush out and watch it. Dating reality shows. I told you last month that I, I admitted that I watched 600 Pound Life. My 600 Pound Life, I watch that a lot now. But dating reality shows are not a genre that I've ever had any interest in. So I'm probably staying away from that one. But hey man, to each his own. I guess if it's, if it's getting you through the quarantine, then it's, it's getting you through, man. Uh, so thanks Tyler. Also, I got a message from my friend Samara, who I went to high school with. She wrote me and she's also got really good taste. Cause she'll sometimes message me about the movies I'm watching and tell me whether or not she liked them. And it's usually the good ones. But she, t- she had three answers for me for the favorite thing she's watched during quarantine, which was kind of cheating, Samara. But anyway, she picked The Conjuring, which she said was one of her all-time favorites. And I have to agree, I love The Conjuring. Very good movie, especially for new horror. Really, really good for studio horror. Uh, she had Get Out as one of her favorite things she's watched, which, as you know, one of my very favorites. Um, I've raved about it many times here on the show. Love that movie. She said it was her first time watching it. Um, and she also said Little Women. And I had to tell her that of those three, I think Little Women's probably my favorite one of the three. I don't know. I mean, I like Get Out a lot, and I go back to it a lot. But Little Women was just stellar. That was a great movie. So uh, three very good picks. So I will say that there were four really good picks and then a fifth one that I'm kind of questioning. So sorry to break that to you, Tyler, but i got to keep it 100. So anyway, uh, follow me on Instagram at Mr. Clint Davis. And uh, if I you know ask a question again next time, uh, please hit me with an answer. I'd love to hear what it is, no matter, you know, how how uh, trashy the show may be. Like I said, we share everything here. I talked to you last time about my love for My 600-Pound Life, which is on freaking TLC, all right? The, like the trashiest network on television, TLC. How does it get any lower than that? So I laid my soul bare to you, my friend. I'm not just a big snob who only watches HBO all the time, Okay. Okay, so usually right here, I light up my stogie. I'm sitting in my closet in Columbus, Ohio. That's where I record my part of the show. Andy's up uh, in Cleveland. But I'm sitting in my closet. Usually I light a stogie, but I'm not going to do it this month just out of solidarity with the people who are going through freaking COVID-19, who are struggling to breathe at all. I felt like smoking the stogie would be like kind of, I don't know. I thought it would be like insulting, especially when we've lost so many people. And we've lost 
titans. And when I say that, I'm really, I'm talking about John Prine. My, I mean, when you talk about artists who have touched my soul, and we all have those musicians, those songwriters that have really touched our souls and just connected with us. Just You feel like you know them because of the way they see the world and the way they are able to write about it. And John Prine is one of those guys for me. I would say even more so than guys I really love, like Bob Dylan. I love Dylan. I love Bruce Springsteen. But those guys, I don't really relate to the things in their songs. For, you know what I mean? Like, I don't relate necessarily to guy working in the factory in New Jersey and who knows a bunch about cars. And that's kind of, those are the things he's passionate about. That's not, I don't relate to that. And Dylan's stuff, I don't really relate to it either. Sometimes I do, but, uh, you know, a lot of it I just admire because it's so well-written and it's just beautiful and it puts you in a place and there are great characters and, you know, Dylan's just, he's a genius. So this is the reason I love those guys. But John Prine is a guy that the stuff he talks about, he's a Midwesterner through and through and was a Midwesterner through and through. I hate to say that. Um, And so it just feels like a lot of times he's talking about things and the way he pronounces words even just it's it brings me back to my own childhood and it makes me think about my own life. So his voice was just incredible. I know a guy that's got a lot to lose. He's a pretty nice fella. Kind of confused. Got muscles in his head. Ain't never been used. Thinks he owns half of this town. Starts drinking heavy, gets a big red nose Beats his old lady with a rubber hose Then he takes her out to dinner, buys her new clothes That's the way that the world goes round That's the way that the world goes round You're up one day, the next you're down It's a happening to water and you think you're gonna drown That's the way that the world goes round I know Andy's gonna have a big remembrance of John Prine But I just, I had to mention that uh, because, you know, I'm not going to smoke my cigar this month, and that's just my little way of kind of flying my flag at half-mast for John Prine and everybody else that we've lost in this. But Prine, really, that hurt, man, because I, I, haven't, I didn't get a chance to ever see him live um, and, you know, have really wanted to, especially for these last few years because he's had health problems anyway. I mean, this is a guy that battled cancer twice, had a lung removed, you know, so if anybody was going to be really hurt or killed by COVID-19, it was going to be this guy. But he was such a, just seemed like such a nice, great guy, helped a lot of young artists get their start and, uh, you know, through his own record label and through promoting their work uh, and having them tour with him and stuff like that. And he just always just seemed like a great guy. And and he was just a true original. There's 300 men. In the state of Tennessee, they're waiting to die. They won't never be free. I ain't hurting nobody. I ain't hurting no one. Six million seven hundred thousand and thirty-three lights on. You think someone could take the time to sit down and listen to the words of my song? So I, I just I, I'm really bummed about this, and 
I'm excited to hear what Andy's going to have to say about him because I know Andy was a, a, a big Prine fan probably even before I was. I remember him talking about John Prine back before I really even knew much about him or knew who he was. He's a guy whose music I heavily got into over the course of about the last decade. Um, but I know Andy's liked him for a long time too, so uh, I'll be looking forward to hearing what he's got to say about the singing mailman coming up in just a little bit. But, man, that is a guy that I'm going to miss really really terribly because he was doing great new music the last few years arguably some of the best of his entire career which is really saying something so let's get on with something we do always do here on the show which is the greatest tv show theme song of all time this week and can you believe it it's our 50th entry into the canon we have been doing the greatest tv show theme song of all time for 50 episodes of the stream police, which is incredible to me because the segment still feels new to me. I remember the first time we did it. I remember my friend and my former coworker, Kelly, who wrote me an email and she's a big TV uh, head as well. And she wrote me an email talking about, uh, you know, theme songs. And, and I was like, you know what? I think TV theme songs would be great as a way to kind of do, to kind of start the show because, you know, the great shows always start with a great TV theme song. So, Let's do it. Let's celebrate the TV theme song. So we've been doing that for 50 weeks, and we've had a lot of shows across a lot of eras and a lot of networks. And this time, I figured, since we're all going through hell over the last month, I didn't want to pile on, and I thought we needed to lighten things up a little bit for our greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. So for this entry, we are going back to that magical year 2000. Who didn't love the year 2000? That was when the world was innocent, right? Pre-9-11. It was back when the WB was the go-to channel for teenagers that weren't watching TRL on MTV. On October 5th of 2000, the WB debuted a show that has gone on to become a classic, especially among millennial women. And boy, did it have a great theme song. That is right, Gilmore Girls, and its theme song, Where You Lead, by Carol King and Louise Goffin, is our pick this time. That sweet sing-along song has opened every single episode of Gilmore Girls during its seven seasons, plus its bonus season that hit Netflix in 2016. And who knows if more seasons are going to come. It seems like one of those shows that's just never going to go away. They're going to keep making new episodes, whether people really want them or not. But every time they make a new episode, I'm sure you're going to hear where you lead. The show, if you've never seen it, it's about a single mother and her teenage daughter who have a very close relationship and live in this idyllic Connecticut town called Stars Hollow. So the lyrics to this tune actually make a lot of sense with the action of the show, which again makes it a great TV show theme song. Where You Lead, uh, this song was a track from Carole King's legendary 1971 album, Tapestry, which ended up pretty much on everyone's record shelf who spent any time in the 1970s. And, I mean, has sold untold millions of copies over the years. It's really one of the biggest albums ever recorded. However, the song itself was actually not appropriate for Gilmore Girls in its original form. You see... 
This song was originally co-written by King as a kind of like Stand By Your Man-esque track that feels really super dated when you listen to it now in the wake of feminism. Because, I mean, feminism was in its very early days in 1970, 71 when she wrote this song. And it hadn't become like a big mainstream thing yet. So this song sounds really dated when it comes out. Um, and King was, the song in its original form, she was singing to a man and telling him, literally, where you lead, I will follow anywhere that you tell me to, which just imagine, I mean, that's cringeworthy when you think of it in 2020, right? It's cringeworthy when you think of it in like 1974. So it actually became a pretty uncomfortable song for King, and she stopped performing it live completely for decades. She just didn't go anywhere near the song and basically acted like it didn't exist, even though it was a track on her biggest album and one of the biggest albums ever recorded. If you So when writer Amy Sherman Palladino, who was behind Gilmore Girls, was getting ready to put the show together, she actually approached Carol King and asked her if she could use this song as the opening. After explaining what the show was about, King said that Amy Sherman Palladino could use it if she could rewrite some of the song and re-record it with her own daughter, Louise Goffin, as a duet. And that's the version you actually hear on the show. It's Carol King and her real daughter singing together this tune that was reclaimed from the scrap heap and made to be about a mother-daughter relationship. So they rewrote some of the lyrics that were, you know, sounded romantic and made it instead to be appropriate for a mother and her daughter. And that had to feel great for King. Because, I mean, imagine you having one of your own songs that you were proud of and that was on this major landmark record for you, but you wanting to have nothing to do with it because it just didn't fit the times anymore and it didn't fit what you personally believed anymore. And being embarrassed of something that you had recorded. So it had to feel amazing for her to be able to reclaim it and reintroduce this song to an entire new generation of fans who have become, who have come to love this song because of its connection with Gilmore Girls. And she's actually, Carol King's actually gone back to performing the song live uh, since the show debuted and got really popular. I will follow any, that you tell me to. So Where You Lead, it's a little cheesy, and the opening titles are pretty cheesy too. They're not really cool at all. Um, they're, they're very like, they feel like somebody made them on iMovie or something, honestly, but this song is basically impossible not to sing along with and to get it stuck in your head when the episode is over. You'll, you'll be walking around singing it like where you lead, I will follow. And, and it'll make you want to go back and watch more episodes of the show just so you can hear it again. So I think that that makes this a great TV show theme song. Plus, it fits to the show perfectly, and it comes from an iconic performer, which makes it even better. I mean, how can you get much bigger than having Carol King personally, you know, re-record one of her own songs for your, the theme song of your show on the WB? I mean, that's that's pretty big. That's pretty cool. So hopefully the song brightened up your day a little bit as you're stuck at home for yet another day, maybe with your own mother or your own daughter. So Gilmore Girls and its theme song, Where You Lead by Carol King and Louise Goffin, is our pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. If you're
right, let's move on and talk about a very different show, but another show that women audiences especially have really flocked to over the last couple of years and for very good reason. I'm talking about Killing Eve, which has its first two seasons right now on Hulu. And it's uh, and the first two seasons aired on BBC America, actually. And the third season is starting this month on AMC, where it has now moved for its stateside viewings. It airs uh, on BBC overseas. So again, seasons one and two on Hulu and season three starting now on AMC. So set your DVR if you still have one of those. Eve, if you've never seen it, um, Beth and I sat down just a week ago and decided to watch to, to get into Killing Eve finally because I really like Phoebe Waller-Bridge. I love what she did with uh, her own show, Fleabag, which I, I reviewed the first season of a couple years ago when it first dropped and loved it. And I think I said back then, Phoebe Waller-Bridge is, is somebody who I think you're going to hear a lot about and it's going to become a major voice in TV. And she has become one of the biggest voices in TV and in entertainment. She's uh, having a hand in writing the new Bond movie that's coming out. She's been on a hell of a run here over the last few years and had her hands in a lot of big projects. But Killing Eve is uh, probably the most popular thing that she's done and she's the creator of the show she's the writer behind the show it's based on a series of novels i guess uh, that were actually written by a man uh, but phoebe Wallerbridge brought them to the screen and has done a really good job and this show has kind of taken off and become a little bit of a, a minor hit especially on cable so if you don't know anything about killing eve what it's about is it is uh, set in the present day and it's about a woman who works for um, MI6, which is, you know, basically like the CIA in England. And uh, the woman's played by Sandra Oh, who is just, Sandra Oh is phenomenal. Uh, I've loved her in everything I've ever seen her in. I didn't, I watched Grey's Anatomy a little bit back in the day. Um, and she was good on that. But what I really remember her from was Arliss on HBO. I, I was a huge Arliss fan when it was on. I thought the show was great because uh, I love sports always. And when I was younger, I was like a teenager and I'd watch Arliss. That's like an old guy show, but I was like a teenager watching it. I thought I just thought it was cool. Um, if you've never seen it, you should check it out on HBO. It's a cool show. But anyway, Sandra Oh was really good on that. She was young in that show. And, uh, and then in the movie Sideways, which is just one of my favorite movies of the last like 20 years, one of my favorite comedies, one of those movies that just never gets old to me. And she's so good in that. And she's got such a great part in it. But anyway, Sandra Oh is fantastic in Killing Eve. And she plays this, um, you know, pretty serious, I would say, serious about her job and just serious in general. Um, woman who is actually American but works for uh, MI6 in England. And uh, she works on this kind of secret small team that's trying to track down who they believe is a, a, a woman assassin who's going around the world killing different people in these brutal ways. And nobody can seem to get a lead on her or, or you know, find any photos of her or just any information about whoever this woman is and they're trying to figure out who she is and that woman is uh named villanelle and she's this russian woman who lives in paris now and lives this very you know lavish kind of lifestyle and makes a ton of money for killing people and she spends it all and she's just got a ton of style she's young and really just loves her job these are two women that love their job one loves killing people for money the other one loves hunting down bad guys so it's really cool and uh it, it's just a classic kind of cat and mouse deal so that's the in a nutshell 
story. And the, the show follows them both basically evenly. So it's not more about Sandra O's character and it's not more about Villanelle, who's played by Jodie Comer, who's a young um, British actor. It's not more about either one of them. It's, it's, it's basically an even split show. They're co-leads for sure. And their stories, you know, start to dovetail and they start to figure each other out and even have some conversations with each other. And like an attraction starts to build between them. That's really weird. And, and there's a chemistry between them as well. It's not weird. It's just kind of, uh, it's not what you would expect in a, in a show like this, in a cat and mouse show, you don't usually expect the cat and mouse to like fuck each other, right? When it's all kind of said and done, but that's what you feel like is going to happen in Killing Eve because there's this real attraction between the two of them. Even though Sandra O, oh, her character is not gay; she's married uh, to a man and um, has never like experimented with women, done anything with women at all. She says, um, but Jodie Comer's character just takes on all comers. So, literally. Uh, anyway, so Killing Eve is just a very addictive show. Like I said, we started it last week and I don't like to talk about a show unless I finished a season and we finished the first season in like four days. It is only eight episodes per season. So it's a fast watch it's a classic British show in that way. Uh, hour episodes each. So it's a very fast watch, but you will want to watch them. I think even if this show was 15 episodes a season, we would have torn through it probably in a week. And I don't binge watch a lot. It's not really my style, but uh, Killing Eve was one we just couldn't stop once we started, really. It was it was that kind of deal. It's the closest thing that I have seen on TV to the feeling that those ja old James Bond movies give you. Um, it's really like that. It's really like James Bond. And it's not like the serious spycraft stuff that you'd see in like a John le Carré adaptation. Um or like in The Americans, which is a show that I absolutely love. But The Americans is very serious about its spycraft. It's like really well-researched, and they, they'll spend entire episodes, you know, just running down one operation, and how are we going to pull this off, and something goes wrong, and um, it shows you all the like boring planning that goes into pulling off a, a great mission, and, you know, it, it just all the all the like minute stuff they have to take care of to keep their identities covered. That's the stuff that does not get covered in Killing Eve. It This show just focuses on like the fun, intriguing, and sexy aspects of espionage, just like James Bond does. And it kind of fast forwards through all the tradecraft stuff and the legwork. There's not a bunch of lingo in this show. And if there is, they kind of explain it to you. So it's a, it's a very easy show to watch if you don't, even if you don't know anything about spy shows, and I consider myself kind of like a, a real lover of spy stories, spy movies, spy shows, books even. Um, and I've watched, read a lot of them of all kinds. So, but I really like Killing Eve and I like the way it presents spies, even though it's not like the Americans and it's not like a John le Carre adaptation because that's not what it's supposed to be. Like I said, it's like the sexy, fun aspects of, of being a spy. Uh, the cool parts is what Killing Eve is concerned with. And it's it's also very concerned with character. This is a character-driven show for sure. We, we peel back a lot of layers of these two women and get to know them and kind of what makes them tick. And we feel like we start to understand it, but then they'll do something that surprises us and we realize we shouldn't get too comfortable and feel like we know them too well. So these women are mysteries and we're really just trying to unravel them and get to know them. 
um, and see what it is that draws them to each other, even though they're supposed to be adversaries. So I was amazed at how much happened in the span of eight episodes that's the first season of Killing Eve. I, I kind of started the show under the impression that it was going to end up being like The Wire or something where, you know, it takes them like two entire seasons. Like you're 20 episodes into it before the cops even make contact with the bad guy or even learn who they are. You know what I mean? It just takes there's so much legwork being done on a show like The Wire, which is like the ultimate slow crawling, you know, kind of police procedural. But no, in this show, it, it was like by the end of the second episode, they knew exactly who she was. They had met her, you know, had like had a conversation with her. It was all like it was it's very fast. This show is like breakneck pace. There's not not a, a break for a breath. So it's intense and exciting and just cool. It just gets on with the action, man. There's not a whole lot of downtime when you're watching Killing Eve. There's nothing boring happening in any episode of this show, which is a, a real plus, I think. Uh, when you're watching a show like this. So anyway, it, it's just a, like I said, it's just a fast paced, fun show, classic cat and mouse stuff with some of the sexual identity crisis stuff thrown into it as well, which feels different for this genre. That's not always something that happens. Um, you know, I mean, it'd be like if Bond, if James Bond found himself attracted to a man that was the villain in the movie and the man was legitimately charming and we all were kind of falling in love with the man and bond was finding himself like you know he's a guy who considers himself this straight cisgender man and he's finding himself attracted drawn somehow to this person that he should really just be hunting and that's what sandra o's character is going through in this and it's really interesting because i have not seen it done uh, it's something like that in this genre. So I really like that. Uh, and I think it's it's cool. And it's a central part of the show. It's not just tacked on. It's like a main part of the show. I would say that is more important than the, the spy stuff is uh, at the heart of Killing Eve. It all feels empowering also for the women at the center of the show rather than exploitative. Um, so I think it empowers Sandra Oh. I think it empowers Jodie Comer. And probably a lot of that is because Phoebe Waller-Bridge is writing the show and not some guy who just wants to be like, hey, yeah, let's have the uh, hot chicks kiss each other. You know, let's have them like have sex and stuff. That'll be really cool. You know, it's not like that. It's not exploitative. It's not done just for titillation. It's like it's done for legitimate reason with the characters. And, you know, I felt when I watched the movie Atomic Blonde a few years ago with Charlize Theron, I was disappointed because I thought that was going to be this kind of thing. But that movie felt exploitative to me. And I kind of ripped it when I wrote a review of that a couple years ago. You could probably find it online if you search Atomic Blonde in my name. I called it basically like uh, a man's version of like female liberation. It was all just kind of done through the male gaze and it felt like it was kind of done for titillation. And here we've got this spy played by Charlize Theron who happens to like to have sex with men and women. But, you know, when she's having sex with women, the camera's a lot more in there and it all just feels a lot more. I don't know. It just felt kind of gross to me when I was watching that one. And it didn't feel like it lent a lot to her character or made a lot of difference in the story. Uh, this is like a much better version of what they were trying to do in that movie uh, is Killing Eve. Also, just stylistically, this show is fantastic. The fashion is great, top to bottom. Fashion's amazing. The hair is great. Um, the characters always look just stunning. They just all look fantastic. Um, the music's awesome. Uh, the whole show is just 
loaded with style. It's a really cool show. The locations are gorgeous. They flash these really huge titles on the screen when they go to a new place, which makes it just seem really epic and cool whenever they're in a new place. You visit several different countries in every episode pretty much, and again, that feels like a Bond movie because in the best Bond movies, you're always kind of jet-setting and visiting several countries throughout the course of one movie, and you're doing that in every episode of Killing Eve. And watching Villanelle at work is a blast because she is about as ruthless as they come on TV, and she is a legitimate villain. I was surprised. I thought, knowing Phoebe Waller-Bridge's work with Fleabag, I thought it was going to be kind of more lighthearted. But there's something that happens a couple episodes into the first season that it was like, holy shit, this is not lighthearted at all. She is a legitimate like psychopathic bad guy who will kill anyone and kind of just enjoys killing people. That's just what she likes to do. So she's, she's just ruthless and she is a straight up, she's a villain at the end of the day. So it's, it's really um, a surprising show in a lot of ways to me. I think with some of the things it does, it just does things that I wouldn't have expected. And Jodie Comer who plays Villanelle just gets so into it and she brings that character to life in so many ways. Uh, it has to be a blast playing that part. She looks like she has so much fun playing it. And the way that Phoebe Waller-Bridge writes that character makes Villanelle impossible to hate, despite the fact that she is brutally killing a lot of people for no reason at all other than she's getting paid. And, you know, it's kind of hard to like someone like that, right? But you end up liking Villanelle a little bit as the show goes on. I am genuinely interested to see where the show takes its characters, and I'm excited to start the second season, which we will be doing soon. But like I said, uh, Killing Eve is um, right now streaming on Hulu, seasons one and two, and season three is starting up on AMC this month. So it's just a, a fun show, really cool, loaded with style, very well written, very well acted. Sandra O's oh fantastic in it. Jodie Comer won an Emmy for her work on the show already. She's brilliant. Um and it's just a it's just a cool show. You know what I mean? You don't you just love a cool show sometimes? That's what Killing Eve is. It's really cool and really fun and just well done TV. So Phoebe Waller Bridge continues to amaze me and uh this is this is just a, kind of another notch in her belt. So it's, it's a great show. So check out Killing Eve whenever you get a chance on Hulu and on AMC. Why, Bill? He was slowing you down. Oh, don't do that. When I push it through slowly, don't make me. All right, I'm going to take a breather, and uh, I'm going to pass things over to Andy, who's going to be talking about the late, great John Prine. So uh, sit back and 
uh, just enjoy what you hear, man. If you never heard of John Prine, and if you're kind of thinking, well, maybe I should fast forward this because I don't know John Prine and I don't really care, uh, uh, trust me. I mean, if you if you believe me at all, and if you listen to this show, I like to think you maybe believe me a little bit on things that I you know think are worth your time. John Prine is as worth your time as anything that we've ever talked about on this show. So he'll he's gonna Andy's gonna play some stuff that you will like no matter who you are or where you come from. I think you'll find something to enjoy about it. And John Prine's music is just a lot of fun most of the time, and that's what we need right now. So anyway, take it away, my friend. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. John Prine, John Prine, John Prine. We lost a great one. How are you holding up? Is the uh, cabin fever unbearable yet? (laughs) I get it. I really do. I get it. These are strange, strange times. There's so much uh, confusion, misinterpretation, uh, convoluted messaging. We are making it harder on ourselves. We are making it harder on our selves uh this is week five working from home in my case i haven't put on a pair of jeans in over a month i haven't worn a watch in over a month i drive my car maybe once a week i've walked the poor dog so much that i know where each and every crack in the sidewalk is and i know which neighbors need to trim their shrubs there's a guy over on 207th who needs to get in gear and get those trimmers out this is the kind of stuff you notice after five weeks of staring at the same old shit but it'll wrap up we'll get through it we will get through it we have no other choice you know i do i tip my hat to the greatest generation because i wouldn't want to go through the depression and world war ii that's no fun um they made it through what other choice did they have <laughs> you know they you just you just go you just move forward the only thing you can do we'll get through this because we have to we have to and hopefully we'll learn something that's the bottom line but i do want to talk about john prine singer songwriter grammy winner army veteran cancer survivor and as of 
last week coronavirus victim. Uh, John passed away April 7th, 2020. He was 73 years old. His specialty was, I guess I'd call it like like plain-spoken poetry. It was plain spoken, but it was it was incredibly poetic at the same time. Um, he wasn't flowery, you know. He didn't jerk himself off when he wrote songs. He just had this unique command over the English language and sort of laid out simplistic observations that built into something greater than the sum of its parts. The songs were always greater than the sum of their parts. Always. Let's play some music. This is called um, "All the Best." It's the I guess that gets me in that song. I guess I wish you all the best. Speaks volumes. Here's a later cut. This is called Crazy as a Loon. So I gathered up my savvy, bought myself a business suit. I headed up to New York City, where a man can make some loot. I got hired Monday morning, downsized that afternoon. Overcome with grief at the evening, now I'm crazy as a loon. So I'm up here in the north woods, just staring at a lake. Wondering just exactly how much they think a man can take. I fish to pass the time away Neath this blue Canadian moon This whole world has made me crazy Crazy as a loon The Lord, this world will make you crazy Crazy as a loon John Prine's most recent album came out in 2018, and I've said this before, but you know it sucks enough when you lose somebody like Bill Withers. Uh, he was talented, um, wrote legendary songs, songs that we all know, but you know he hadn't put out any new music in in decades. John Prine was still putting out strong material, so it feels like we were robbed. Although his career began in the 70s, it still feels like we were robbed. Just like it felt like we were robbed when we lost Tom Petty and David Bowie. They called John Prine the singing mailman. Truth be told, I never really liked that nickname. It sounds kind of corny. It sounds kind of kind of stupid, like, like he's some weird novelty. Um, but let me explain where that comes from. Prine's family originally is from 
the Kentucky area and um, moved to Chicago um, for work. And that's where John Prine grew up, was the Chicago area. And he was in his mid-20s by the time his debut album came out. Now, that's actually sort of late in life by music standards. Um, So in order to make ends meet between A and B, he worked as a mailman. Uh, Were you a good mailman? (laughs) Well, I got the mail out there, you know, somehow. There's not a whole lot to think about when you're out on a mail route. Yeah. (laughs) Is it, uh, to me, it seems like it's, uh, it's hard. Uh, physically difficult work and and tedious was that a problem for you that the weather and the dogs yeah otherwise he was um he was actually a mailman for six years that's you know it's a pretty significant run were you ever injured in the line of duty yeah i got bit in the backside once i dragged the dog about a half a block down the street <laughs> <laughs> what were you full of novocaine or what <laughs> he wouldn't let go oh he wouldn't let go uh but six years that's a pretty good run yeah, well, I, it was all a, you know, I would, probably would have stayed there for another six if I hadn't started singing. Yeah, well, good for you. I mean, it worked out very nicely. I think. If you're going to make it in the music business, you need somebody to go to bat for you. You need somebody to be your champion. Uh, somebody to vouch for you, right? And in Prine's case, that turned out to be Chris Christopherson. Not a bad advocate. Uh, particularly in the early 1970s when he was really at the top of his game. Now, look, his debut came out in 1970, and it was sort of it was sort of rushed out because of the success that he had, um, or the success really that Janis Joplin had with one of Christopherson's songs, "Me and Bobby McGee." So, Christopherson's record d- did pretty well that debut. His second album came out in '71. That one actually did better. So. He was the it kid of the moment. And if he said that Prine was legit, people noticed. Through Christopherson, you, you soon got a record deal, and, and, uh, and it's... Uh... Goodman and I went to New York City. Goodman had been there before. I'd never been to New York. I got off the plane at 7.30 at night and picked up a village voice at LaGuardia. And here, we didn't know Chris was in town, but Chris was playing the village. We went straight down. We got in a cab with our guitars in our suitcase and got off right in front of the bitter end. And here's Chris and Donnie Fritz and Billy Swan. They're all walking back over for the second show. And Chris looks at us and he says, he says, you guys are going to get up and sing three songs apiece. And the whole room was packed with uh, record executives. And Jerry Wexler came up to me after I sang my three songs and asked me if I'd come over to Atlantic next morning at 10 a.m. And I did, and he had a record contract waiting on the desk for me. I hadn't been in New York 24 hours. (laughs) He made friends with other folks at the time, guys in Chicago, Bill Murray, Harold Ramis, John Belushi, Steve Goodman. Here's Bill Murray talking about John Prine and don't waste your time waiting for a punchline. I mean, this is kind of a different, you're, you're getting a different side of Bill Murray here. He's not joking around. He's actually being very serious in this moment. So once upon a time I was, it was the first time in my ever life I was ever what, not people go clinically depressed, but like a real bummer to be around, like a real downer to be around. 
and I just couldn't get myself having any kind of fun. Somewhere you, there's a record that, that John made. It's got a whole lot of tracks on it. It's got like 26 or 7 tracks right. on it, maybe 30. Uh, I remember listening, and I think this song was about track 22 or 26 or something. It's deep. But there it was, this song, Linda Goes to Mars. And I heard that song and I went, hmm. I don't know what it was that made me laugh at it, but God, it, it could have been, I wonder if she'll bring me some of them. But I remember going, hmm. And I thought, that just happened. It just happened. That was a great day. One of Prine's most famous songs is called Paradise. It's about Paradise, Kentucky, where his family is originally from. It's an area that he would visit uh, on a regular basis as a kid. And it's about how that region in Kentucky changed over the years. He was kind of unfairly pressed about the song in an interview in 1988. This is on a Nashville TV show. And the host, it sounds like evidently, didn't think too highly of topical songwriting. Uh, the song was just called Paradise. It's called Paradise. About Millenburg County, Kentucky. It was a protest song, wasn't it? Oh, not quite. It was a, I just told the truth. <laughs> well, you were, you were protesting something that you well, objected to. They strip-mined the... the it, mining had always been a main industry in Millenburg County, but it was all shaft mining. And uh, the TVA hired... Uh, Peabody Coal Company to come in and strip the whole county. Here is that song. It's called Paradise by John Prine. Then the coal company came with the world's largest shovel and they tortured the timber and stripped all the land. Well, they dug for their coal till the land was forsaken. Then they rolled it all down as the progress of man. And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River where paradise lay Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking Mr. Peabody's coal train is hauled it away When I die, let my ashes float down the Green River let my soul roll on up to the Rochester down. I'll be halfway to heaven with paradise waiting Just five miles away from wherever I am And daddy won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River where paradise lays Well I'm sorry my son but you're too late and ask me Mr. Peabody's coal train has hauled it away. If you don't know much about John Prine, the word that I'm sure that you've seen over and over again is storyteller. Storyteller. And it's it, frankly, it's probably one of those words that we throw around too much, but this guy could really spin a yarn. I mean real stories with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Like a, a story story. And like all great art, it came from a place of insecurity, especially live. This is a guy who wrote songs that were stories, and then he told more stories in between story songs on stage. 
And unfortunately, I never saw him live. In fact, after he died, one of the first things that Clint texted me was, did you ever see him live? But I said, nah, no, I didn't. And I'm sorry I didn't because I've seen him in interviews. I've, I've listened to live cuts. And he was a personable, charming performer. Um, that was his strength. Maybe what some would consider his main strength. And it was. It was really born out of insecurity. Normally, I was kind of a shy person. And as soon as that one light hit me, I just talked my ass off. I just, <laughs> I just told stories and, you know, off the top of my head. And mainly I, was, I found out I told stories because I, I was nervous about my singing and playing. You know, I didn't think it was up to par at all. He could be deceptively funny, but Jerry Jeff Walker was quoted as to saying that there was always a teardrop in John Prine's songs. One of the saddest songs ever, and, and I'm not exaggerating, this is really, really grim and affecting. It is called Sam Stone. It's about a war veteran coming home and not getting work, falling into drugs, and between his loneliness and his family's helplessness, it's just a somber, bitter portrait of a situation that is, that is common. This does happen. We have heard about it. And this is just such an apt description of events that you can, you can, just, you can practically see it. It's like a painting. You can, you can envision it. You can visualize it. Sam Stone came home to his wife and family After serving in the conflict overseas And the time that he served Shattered all his nerves and left a little shrapnel in his knee. But the morphine eased the pain and the grass grew around his brain and gave him all the confidence he lacked. With a purple heart and a monkey on his back. He was asked about the first time that he ever played Sam Stone, and his answer was was pretty interesting. Oh, and the first time I sang it in public, people didn't applaud. They just looked at me. And I, and I thought, oh, shit, this is worse than I thought. You know? John Prine had many admirers. One of them was Johnny Cash. Cash covered Sam Stone. It's the kind of song that honestly had to appeal to Cash. I mean, there's the veteran as the main character. There's there's the the drug dependency and the the uh, descriptiveness of of sin. There was, however, a lyric that he had a problem with. Here's John Prine discussing the line that Cash took issue with. Johnny Cash is like Abraham Lincoln to me. He wanted to do Sam Stone when he first heard when my first album came out, and Johnny was having trouble singing the part about uh, Jesus Christ died for nothing, I suppose. 
And I said, well, you know, it's the heart of the song for me. I said, it's everything. And the song kind of fell out of that one line. And I said, I know where I'm coming from when I say that. It's, it just means there's no hope that, like, um, if, if a veteran's going to come home and be treated like that and nobody's going to help him with his drug habit, then, you know, what's the use in living, you know? I didn't want to change it myself, but I asked John if he um, wanted to say something about his father. And it, because it follows the line, there's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes. So John just came up with, daddy must have heard a lot back then, I suppose. And, you know, I figured, that's Johnny Cash. Yeah, you know, all I know is he's singing my song. Yeah. Halfway between Johnny Cash and Bob Dylan is where John Prine said that he saw himself fitting in. Dylan, it turned out, was another fan. And if you know much about Bob Dylan, he's odd. He's not a fan of many people. At least nobody that, that you or I have ever heard of. Um, but he liked John Prine. I met Bob Dylan before my first album came out. I was in New York uh, after I'd recorded the album for Atlantic Records. This had been August of 1971. And me and Goodman, Steve Goodman, was back in New York, and so was our pal Chris Christopherson. So Chris calls us up one day and says, hey, why don't you guys come over across town to Carly Simon's apartment? Carly was opening for Chris at the bitter end. We went, he said, I got a surprise for you guys. We went over to Carly's, and we're sitting around shooting the breeze. Yeah. There's a knock at the door, it's Bob Dylan. This is before he had started performing again is when he was still on a hiatus mm -hmm. in that motorcycle crash. So he was the last person. I, you could have sent a Martian down. And yeah, the last that person that you think you've done That wouldn't me as much as seeing Bob Dylan walk in. We uh, got get introduced, and pretty soon the guitarist came out. And I got to singing one of my songs called Far From Me. Like I say, my first album was three weeks away from being out. Well, Bob Dylan starts singing along. <laughs> one of my songs, and it's not even released yet. Wow. He had gotten Jerry Wexler, Atlantic had sent Bob a, uh, a pre-release, and he had learned the song. Oh, that and was... I'm sitting there going, my God. You make your mouth flower. Saying, I know all your songs, but you, how do you know mine? Yeah. <laughs> In the late 1990s, Prine was diagnosed with cancer, and it turned out to sort of be a dividing line in his career. Uh, for one, doctors removed part of his neck, and during treatment, he, he received radiation. It had an effect on his voice. It made his voice deeper, a little more gravelly, and he actually said it forced him to change the keys to his older songs um, because he had to sing them in, in a lower register. It ended up being kind of a neat result because old songs now felt new to perform. And I do think that's sort of an ongoing issue that performers have. They get weary of their own material. And you know how that is if you are, are critical of your own work. After a while, you just start noticing the things that you don't like about it. So this gave him a way to sort of reshuffle the deck by changing the keys in the old songs and live performances were ongoing. He would 
record with several female performers later in his career. Two albums uh, dedicated exclusively to duets with with female performers. One of them, In Spite of Ourselves, uh, is God, it's just excellent. Uh, he put it out the year after his, his diagnosis. It's got Lucinda Williams, Patti Loveless, I mean, Lou Harris on it. The title track, In Spite of Ourselves, is with Iris Dement, who I had never heard of until this song. Uh, but she's got this great hillbilly vocal that totally complements that new kind of graveliness in John Prine's voice. And when I say hillbilly vocal, I mean that in a good way. It's, it's, it's another quirky song that ultimately is heartwarming, and they play off each other really well. She don't like her eggs all runny. She thinks crossing her legs is funny. She looks down her nose at money. She gets it on like the Easter bunny. She's my baby. I'm her honey. I'm never going to let her go. He ain't got laid in a month of Sundays. Caught him once and he was sniffing my undies. He ain't too sharp, but he gets things done. Drinks his beer like it's oxygen. He's my baby and I'm his honey. Never gonna let him go. In spite of ourselves, we'll end up sitting on a rainbow. Against all odds, honey, we're the big door prize. In fact, after his death, Kevin Bacon and his wife, uh, actress Kira Cedric, paid tribute to Prine with a cover of the song, In Spite of Ourselves. They did it with a pair of ukuleles. Um, For those of you who don't know, Bacon is also a touring musician with his band, The Bacon Brothers. She don't like her rigs all running. She thinks crossing her legs is funny. She looks down her nose and money. She gets it on like the Easter bunny. She's my baby, I'm her honey. I never gonna let her go. Roger Ebert famously wrote that after a song or two, even drunks are listening to John Prine's lyrics. I would be remiss if I didn't share my personal favorite John Prine song. I have many. There's one called Taking a Walk that was released in 05 that is a strong contender. The album was called Fair and Square and Round for Round, I think it's the strongest album of his career. I mentioned Crazy as a Loon earlier, that's on there. There's a song called The Glory of True Love that's just just so warm. And Taking a Walk is such a beauty. But the song I never, ever get tired of. It's very obscure. It's called Quit Hollering at Me. It's not profound. Um, but there's something about it that, that makes me laugh. And it sounds like it was just kind of recorded in a vacuum. Like... I see an empty room when I listen to it. And it's just such a cool song about things getting stale. I don't want your big French fry. I don't want your car. Show I want to hear 
the sugarless gum. Gee, but I'm dumb. Nine alcoholic beer. It's enough to make a grown man blow up his own TV. Quit a hollering at me. Quit a hollering at me. I just never get tired of it. It was released in 1995, just before that cancer diagnosis. So I guess it's the last album to feature John's quote-unquote natural voice. The record is called uh, Lost Dogs and Mixed Blessings, by the way. I heard of you the first time I heard of myself say Seems like the little woman Is getting bigger every day You don't have to tell the neighbors A little silence ain't no sin They already think my name is Where in the hell you've been Louder, 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 louder Louder constantly Quit a hollering at me Quit a hollering at me It was the last of Prine's albums to be produced by a gentleman named Howie Epstein. If that name sounds familiar, Epstein was the bassist and backing vocalist in Tom Petty's Heartbreakers for a lot of years. Prine and Epstein did two albums together. They likely would have done more uh, if not for Prine's cancer and then um, Epstein's premature death in, I think, 2003. But, um, But I love Epstein's production because it it gave Prine's music some punch. Uh, he brought in members of the Heartbreakers to play on, on these albums, including Tom Petty himself. Um, and these songs deserve some punch. You know, John Prine had lyrics that, that certainly punched, and Epstein made sure that the, the music matched it. And on this record, for this record, uh, Marianne Faithful is on it, sings backing vocals. Ironically, Marianne Faithful is also in the hospital with COVID-19. You may remember this song of hers. It was released in 1964. She sang with Prine uh, throughout the album, including on uh, Quit Hollering at Me. Quit a hollering at me. Quit a hollering at me. I could go on and on about John Prine. Maybe I will later. Um, but I was a fan for, for a long time. And that last album was so good. His, his death just feels awful. We were, we were still getting good music from him. You just feel robbed, <laughs> you know? He wasn't done. It didn't feel like he was done. John Prine, rest in peace. I was a fan. I've been a bad boy. I've been a long gone. I've been out there. I never phoned home. I never gave you not one. A little clue where I'd been. I've been a bad boy again. 
All right, friends, we are building the most perfect playlist known to man. You can find it and enjoy it on Spotify by searching Stream Police. Every month we add five more songs. This month we're going to add five John Prine songs. So I hope you're you're not getting tired of them yet. Um, got to you know, got to respect the legends. So uh, first up is a song that I previously mentioned. It's just it's just gorgeous. It's just gorgeous. It's called Taking a Walk. I'm taking a walk I'm going outside I'm taking a walk I'm just getting back Next is Bob Dylan's favorite John Prine song, and I think it's Clint's as well. It's Lake Marie. Hear a little more of that. I found myself talking to this girl who was standing there with her back turned to Lake Marie. The wind was blowing, especially through her hair. There was four Italian sausages cooking on the outdoor grill, and they was sizzling. Many years later, we found ourselves in Canada trying to save our marriage. And perhaps catch a few fish. Whatever came first. That night she fell asleep in my arms. Humming the tune to Louis Louie. Ah, baby. We gotta go now. We were standing. Standing by peaceful waters. Standing by peaceful waters And this is the first Prine song that I ever heard. It's called Dear Abby. Dear Abby, dear Abby, my fountain pen leaks. My wife hollers at me and my kids are all freaks. Every side I get up on is the wrong side of bed. If it weren't so expensive, I'd wish I were dead. Signed, unhappy. Unhappy, unhappy, you have no complaint. You are what you are and you ain't what you ain't. So listen up, Buster, and listen up good. Stop wishing for bad luck and knocking on wood.
Okay, this is a tune from his most recent album called Tree of Forgiveness. It's called Summer's End. Summer's ends around the bend just flying. The swimming suits are on the line just drying. I'll meet you there for our conversation. I hope I didn't ruin your whole vacation. Well, you never know how far from home you're feeling until you've watched the shadows cross the ceiling. Well, I don't know, but I can see it snowing in your car the windows are wide open just come on home come on home no you don't have to be alone just come on home and finally a stinging song delivered with a smile. The title says it all. It's called, Your Flag Decal Won't Get You Into Heaven Anymore. Well, I went to the bank this morning And the cashier said to me If you join the Christmas club We'll give you ten of them flags for free Well, I didn't mess around a bit I took him up on what he said and I stuck them stickers all over my car And one on my wife's forehead But your flag cow won't get you Into heaven anymore They're already overcrowded From your dirty little war Now Jesus don't like killing No matter what the reason's for Into heaven anymore And what the hell, let's do one more. This is also a new one. This is called God Only Knows. God only knows the price that you pay For the ones you hurt Along the way If I should betray Myself today Then God only knows The price I pay God only knows God That's it. Thanks so much. Take care of yourselves. Take care of your loved ones. Don't do anything stupid. See ya. Just a devastating loss. And that to me, I'm lucky because that to me was where COVID-19 and this whole deal got personal uh, was by taking him away. Just absolutely one of my heroes. So thank you for that. Uh, 
Thank you for that remembrance, Andy. Always good to hear from you. I hate that it ends up, you know, being a lot of times a, a big obituary, but we've been just losing, uh, we've been losing icons lately. All right, let's get back to talking about uh, what's on TV right now. And a show that is in the middle of its fifth season right now on AMC is one of my favorites. I ranked it among my top 10 shows of the 2010s. It is Better Call Saul. And that show is continuing its run. But uh, real quick, I I don't want to talk about the fifth season overall, although I will say that the the season has been good. It's been... um, grim it's like the show is getting closer and closer to breaking bad literally i mean it is getting closer and closer in, in terms of timeline to breaking bad but it's getting closer and closer in terms of style to breaking bad because the first few seasons of better call saul did not really feel like breaking bad at all they felt a lot more they felt a lot more like light uh, but I don't mean that in a bad way i just it felt lighter like the crimes that were happening in better call saul were not really like nobody was getting killed or hurt people weren't like doing meth you know i mean it was just people weren't really getting shot it was just kind of like little rip-off schemes that would cost some people a couple thousand dollars or something like that was kind of what jimmy mcgill the main character of better call saul was doing but now he's become saul goodman for real and uh everything that comes with that is starting to happen and the show is just going in a dark new direction over these last few episodes i just wanted to take a second though to praise bob odenkirk for his work on better call saul this season because i think even if you don't consider this season to be the best the show's done so far and i i don't know that i do overall i i did really like the early seasons maybe a little bit more than where it's been kind of lately but i think odenkirk's been doing the best work of his entire career in this season because he's had to walk the tightrope of being a bastard and being a good guy more than ever. And he's had to show so many sides of himself and, um, he's had to, I mean, he's, he's done like light nudity as well. I mean, he's just been really putting himself out there in this season of better call Saul and kind of letting it all fly. Um, and it's just been great acting He's been great all the way through the series, uh, but he's been really, really good this season. And uh, I would love to see him win an Emmy for his work uh, on the show this season. I think it's it's overdue, and I think um, Ray Seahorn is way overdue for an Emmy as well. If she goes this entire show without ever winning an Emmy, it's going to be one of the biggest robberies in Emmy's history, honestly, because she has been phenomenal from start to finish. She has finally given the Breaking Bad universe, and this is a credit to the writers as much as her, she's finally given the Breaking Bad universe a woman character that people really enjoyed seeing and who I think was written as a real human being rather than like Anna Gunn's character in Breaking Bad was pretty much a big nag. And that sucked for her because she's a really good actor, but she was basically just kind of a nag. And she was annoying, and you just wanted to watch Walt all the time. You didn't want to hear him getting nagged at home. Um, So that was kind of, that sucked. It was unfair for her. But Ray Seahorn has been phenomenal. The way they've written the character of Kim Wexler makes her, you know, just one of the best characters in this entire universe. Uh, And I really, really hope that she wins an Emmy at some point for her work on this show because she really does deserve it. She's been so good. But Bob Odenkirk's been phenomenal. The show that just aired, the episode that just aired of Better Call Saul that made me want to bring it up here on this month's episode 
really blew me away, though, and this is one of those episodes that is is go, has to win some Emmys and get a lot of consideration because it's one of those kind of greatest episodes ever kind of deals, and it really is. I'm not trying to use too much hyperbole here, but it was a 60-minute powerhouse. The episode was called Bagman, and if you haven't gotten around to it yet, if you've been slow to pick up the season, um, then get caught up because Bagman was like an hour of breathless television and it felt like real filmmaking. And you know, the reason why is because it was directed by the great Vince Gilligan, who was the guy behind some of the greatest episodes of the X-Files and who was the guy behind, um, Breaking Bad. He's the guy who created Breaking Bad and directed a lot of the greatest episodes of that show, wrote a lot of the best episodes of that show. But he is just a master television storyteller, truly one of the best of all time. And he got behind the camera for Bagman and made it an event. I mean, this was fantastic. Like I said, breathless TV for an entire hour. And um, the episode basically saw Saul Goodman and Mike Ehrmantraut, all of our favorite, you know, kind of like handyman can, you know, Mr. Fix-It badass, uh, wandering through the desert, kind of like Lawrence of Arabia or, you know, the droids in Star Wars. And uh, they were trying to get this these two big duffel bags full of $7 million in cash safely back to civilization through the desert because their car broke down and there's a guy hunting them, trying to find them uh, all throughout the desert. So Mike's employing all of his like survival techniques that he's, he's learned. Saul's wearing his like cheesy suit that he always wears. And he's, you know, wearing dress shoes and like long sleeve shirt, totally not dressed for something like this at all. Um, and there's a lot of loss of innocence in this episode. And there's a lot of hard lessons that are learned for everyone. Uh, but some really great heroic moments as well. It's just, it was a fantastic hour of TV, and I was blown away. It's immediately one of the best episodes of this show that's that's been made easily. It's it's right up there with the best that Better Call Saul has ever been, and I think uh, it's uh, an episode that is a lock to win at least an Emmy. Um, could win an Emmy for Gilligan's directing. I could see because it's just it's just a stellar episode for everyone involved in it. Jonathan Banks was great in it as well. And uh, he's been great all the way through Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. He's one of the main reasons to continue to watch it. So anyway, this show, like I said, keeps getting closer to Breaking Bad uh, in terms of its tone and its style. And Bagman was a perfect example of that because it was basically a big action episode. And Better Call Saul, more than Breaking Bad, is a lot more of a dialogue show. Um, and this this episode was basically a big action episode and it felt like some of the great episodes of Breaking Bad especially toward the end of it so if you compare the kind of stuff uh, if you compare this episode to the kind of stuff that was happening in the first couple seasons of Better Call Saul it doesn't even look like the same show I mean it looks like a completely different series which is how I always felt about Breaking Bad too I mean if you remember what it was like when you first saw Walter White the kind of nebbish high school teacher um, with his hair and everything, standing in his underwear out in the desert, and then what he would become toward the end of it, which is a guy you could not root for at all, who you completely hated because he was such a bad person, um, then that's what you're getting to, I think, in Better Call Saul. But we all still do like Saul Goodman a little bit. I'm not quite at the point where I hate him, uh, but he's getting more sleazy by the minute. And Bagman was, uh, was just a high watermark for that show. And uh, for TV this year, it's it's 
stellar. So if you haven't seen it yet, and if you've been waiting around to watch Better Call Saul, get into it, man. It's just a fantastic show. It's phenomenal. I think it's all the seasons are on Netflix right now, except for the current season, which is airing on AMC. So you can catch it on demand there if you have a cable subscription or YouTube TV subscription or whatever. I totally recommend it. Come on, you ass. You want this seven mil? Come on. I'm just walking here. Damn idiot. Let me get some, you dickhead. Look at me! <laughs> Alright, I watched something else on TV recently that I was not so enamored with as I was that Bagman episode of Better Call Saul. And this really shocked me because this is something on HBO. It is a show called McMillions. And I'm going to break my own rule here because I did not watch the entire run of McMillions. All I did was watch an episode, but let me tell you, my friend, that was enough for me. McMillions is streaming right now on HBO now if you do want to give it a chance. But anyway, what it is about This is a true crime documentary series about this elaborate scheme that happened in the like 90s and 2000s when the Monopoly, McDonald's Monopoly game was happening. Do you you have to remember that if you lived in America at all in the 90s and 2000s, you remember McDonald's Monopoly. You remember your parents probably being like, we got to make special trips to McDonald's just so I can get, you know, like a large Coke or whatever so that I can peel off the stupid sticker and try to get a, a Monopoly piece. So this show looks into apparently at some point, and if you wondered whatever happened to the Monopoly game, because they haven't done it in a long time, Apparently there was this like group of like organized this organized crime group that got somehow rigged the game and won all the big like million dollar prizes and the cars and stuff like that and won all those by cheating the game somehow. So it was this really elaborate scheme that happened for years and they were unco- un you know they weren't found out. They were getting away with it. Um, until the FBI, like in Jacksonville, Florida or whatever, started to look into it uh, based on an anonymous tip. And uh, it all kind of crumbled from there. So that's what this is about. And again, it's called McMillions. So when HBO does a documentary series, especially one that's a true crime documentary series, you kind of sit up and take notice, right? I mean, they were like one of the networks that pioneered this type of television back in the day and they've done a lot of really good ones and the trailers for McMillions were awesome and really intrigued me to watch this show Beth and I both were looking forward to it because we would see trailers for it when we'd watch other things on HBO now and so we sat down with the first episode of it and like I said unfortunately that's as far as we ended up getting I just found the whole thing to be so the best word for it is irritating. I just was irritated by the entire thing. And I felt like it was frankly kind of stupid, you know, and it just felt lightweight. 
And to me, that is a shock because HBO, again, this is a network that gave us like life-changing films like Paradise Lost, which is one of those that I will never forget. Soul-shaking movie, Paradise Lost. If you've never seen it, seek it out. That was that came from HBO. It's 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 one of those you know seminal documentary movies, and documentary series like The Jinx, which I've reviewed at length on this show. If you want to go back and find my review of The Jinx, again, that's a show that just stirs your soul and lives with you for the rest of your life. You'll never forget about watching a show like that, especially those chilling final moments of it. So McMillions, to me, just was so frivolous and campy compared to shows and movies like that, which came from this network. This felt a lot more to me like a Netflix kind of thing, which is an insult. Because Netflix just cranks this shit out. They just, like, I don't know what they do, but they just, like, will pay anyone who comes up with an idea. Oh, my God, somebody in 1985 ripped off a woman's purse in Milwaukee and ran over someone with their car. Nobody ever figured out who did it. Can we do uh, 20 episodes on it? And they'll give them, like, $20 million to do, you know, 20 episodes. Not that much money. Netflix is famously cheap, I guess. But they give them some money, and they'll be like, yeah, that's fine. People, our, our viewers will watch any crime show or film. So McMillions felt like the kind of thing that would have been on net should have been on Netflix, not on HBO, because HBO's prestigious still. You know what I mean? It means something. But there are just a lot better ways to spend your time. You know, I, I really I lost interest in McMillions when I realized that it was a series and not just a single two hour film. I thought when we sat down with it it was a movie. But then it was like, at the end, they're just getting started, and they're, it's a cliffhanger, and I'm just like, oh, Jesus Christ, I can't watch another hour of this. And I think Beth felt the same way. The reason it was so irritating was they had this guy, one guy who was like their main interview source, who was an FBI agent who worked on the case right at the beginning of it, and they interviewed this guy a lot in the first episode. I'm talking about like every other soundbite comes from this guy, and he is such a douchebag. He's like as annoying as anyone I've ever seen on TV. I don't even remember his name, but if you've watched McMillions, you know exactly who I'm talking about. He's just the dude. He he seems like the kind of guy who drives around in a truck that has those like balls hanging from the bottom of it. You know what I mean? Makes it look like the truck has testicles for some reason. They never have a penis, but they just always have balls. But anyway, he seems like that kind of guy. Just the most obnoxious, like, Matthew McConaughey character that you can imagine. But he, like, thinks he's the shit, and the filmmakers apparently think he's the shit, too, because they keep going back to him. So every other soundbite is from this guy, and I was just ready for the whole thing to end, just so I didn't have to hear from this guy anymore, because he was so annoying, so grating. And I honestly didn't even really care about the crime. It was like they explained it and they made it sound like really epic and it was like the heist of the century, ripping off McDonald's. And who gives a fuck, honestly, at the end of the day? I mean, nobody got killed in this thing. And so they got a couple million dollars from McDonald's and somebody got a Corvette. I mean, who gives a shit, honestly? The more fascinating stuff to me was hearing about how the game of the monopoly of McDonald's came to be and the marketing company that was behind it. That was more interesting to me than the crime was. But I just didn't really care who did it, how they did it. I didn't care. It didn't seem that interesting to me. It just seemed like a bunch of hillbillies in Florida, honestly, was what they made it sound like 
with too much time on their hands, rip it off McDonald's. And so there's they they make a big point in the movie, which I'm laughing now, remembering they make a big point in the movie that nobody's ever heard of this crime. They're always like, I can't believe it's the biggest crime you've never heard of. That's what they said in the trailer. And I'm like, yeah, there's a reason because it's who gives a shit. It's a bunch of hillbillies in Florida ripping off McDonald's. Who cares? That's that's why no one's ever heard of it because it's not a, that big of a deal. It's not who shot Lincoln, okay? So anyway, McMillions to me was a waste of time. Didn't like it at all. Uh, you know, did I did I jump ship too soon? I don't know. Maybe I did, but I wasn't. Uh, just wasn't feeling it. It was just an annoying first episode, and I'm like, I can't sit through five more episodes or whatever there is of this. So sorry, HBO, but not your best work, if you ask me. So, but it is streaming right now on HBO now. If you want to check out McMillions, did you watch it? Let me know what you thought. Uh, write me an email at theclintdavis at gmail.com. T H E Clint Davis at gmail.com. Those are just my thoughts, just one voice here ringing out in the darkness. I see this note on the desk, McDonald's, Monopoly, fraud, and I go, give me that damn thing. Because I'm bored to death with this healthcare garbage, right? It's important, but. I was ready to move on. <laughs> this was Doug's opportunity to be an undercover agent. I showed up with a gold suit on. This is like a golden fry suit. He looks like he's a manager of a McDonald's. But I had a white shirt on, so I thought I was safe. <laughs> I wasn't. Man, undercover is awesome. Something I did like a lot that I watched recently, though, was the movie Onward, which is now streaming on Disney+. Plus. So I just real quick wanted to recommend that to you. That That is a Pixar movie that came out this year, and they kind of rushed it to Disney+, Plus real fast because of the you know, COVID-19 outbreak and everything. Um, and it was just a really, like, fun movie. I mean, I don't know if it's going to be up there with, like, WALL-E and, you know, Monsters, Inc. and the Toy Story movies. It's kind of like the you know, the must-see important Pixar movies. But Onward, to me, was was just as fun as any of the best Pixar movies have been, even if it wasn't as profound. But it did have a really nice story, you know, about living in the past and about, um, you know, losing your parents and trying to get to know who they were, even if they're not in your life. And um, it had a beautiful kind of story about two brothers and their mom too who was a really big part of the movie was voiced uh, by Julia Louis-Dreyfus and the two brothers were voiced by Chris Pratt and Tom Holland and um it's a it was just a fun movie it was like the kind of thing um where you could tell the writers just loved like the Lord of the Rings series and they loved like big 80s heavy metal and all that kind of stuff um and Dungeons and Dragons which has really inspired a lot of this movie um so it's really nerdy stuff you know but uh, it was all really fun, really cool. The world it was set in was fun. It was kind of a world that you would like to visit and you like hanging out in. And the characters were fun to hang out with. Um, and it was just had a lot of great moments in it. The animation was stunning, you know, as you would expect from Pixar. It was gorgeous. So uh, just a, a cool movie and touching in a lot of ways as well because these two guys, you know, were they, they lost their dad. Uh, when they were young, and um, one of them has very faint memories of him, and the other one has no memories of him. So they find a magic spell, basically, that can bring their dad back for 24 hours, and they're trying to do that, and a lot of things get in their way. A lot of bad things happen, and, of course, they have to overcome a lot of their own obstacles as 
uh, as they go on. But it's uh, it was, you know, a really fun, just fun, really fun movie. So I would say it's perfect viewing for right now when you're stuck at home. So if you have Disney Plus, check out Onward. And if you don't have Disney Plus, you can rent it uh, on, you know, where, wherever it is that you rent digital movies or at Redbox. Uh, just rent it and watch it uh, one weekend. I think you'll really like it, especially if you have kids. Uh, they'll they'll probably dig this one as well. It's just a, a fun, cool movie that is light and enjoyable for this time of year, but also has some beautiful things in it to say about family and about not taking your family for granted, you know? So I think it's a lesson we can all learn. But anyway, Onward is streaming right now on Disney+, Plus, and I fully recommend it. It was really fun. Your dad said to give you this when you were both over 16. It's a wizard staff. Dad was a wizard. Your dad was an accountant. This spell brings him back. What? Back like back to life? That's not possible. It is with this. I'm going to meet dad. Okay, while I did love Onward, I always, toward the end of the show, like to tell you the best thing I watched this month. It was not Onward. The best thing I watched this entire month was Raging Bull from 1980. Wasn't my first time seeing it. Wasn't my second time seeing it. I don't think it was my third time seeing it. But I hadn't watched Raging Bull in about 10 years. And it was one of those DVDs that I had laying around, uh, you know, that I've always had in my collection. But hadn't watched in a while and I was just like you know what now that I have the time I'm gonna watch Raging Bull again it's just one of those heavy movies it's hard to watch too often because it's just it's pretty it's pretty brutal and heavy pretty violent movie but anyway it's the classic boxing movie directed by Martin Scorsese with Robert De Niro Joe Pesci and it um and it's the story of Jake LaMotta the Bronx Bull who famously you know never went down for anybody and uh but he did throw fights and he did uh, end up, you know, kind of wrecking his own career just by being an asshole. So it's a, uh, it's just a tough movie to watch. But my God, I mean, this, Robert De Niro and Raging Bull probably gives, and this is going to sound so, this is going to sound like bullshit. This is going to sound like the biggest hyperbole you've ever heard. But he probably gives the best performance in movie history. Honestly, the single best piece of acting, if I could tell you to watch one thing, and this is the best example of acting I've ever seen, it would be Robert De Niro and Raging Bull. I think it is the finest work any actor's ever done in movies. And and the movie is full of great performances, so that makes his even better. But he's just incredible with all the weight loss, weight gain, the way he changes his body, but the little things that he does to inhabit the character of Jake LaMotta. It just feels like a documentary. The movie does really feels like a documentary from start to finish. And there are little supporting characters who appear only in like a couple scenes, but they have such presence and are shown such respect by the camera that you find yourself wanting to know more about each of them. I mean, and this is the brilliance of Paul Schrader, who wrote the screenplay, for Raging Bull, he I guess he was uncredited, but he wrote pretty much the whole final draft screenplay of Raging Bull. I mean, he's the guy that wrote Taxi Driver and and you know Bringing Out the Dead and First Reformed, some of my favorite movies ever made. And so Schrader's a genius. Scorsese's at the top of his game here. De Niro's absolutely at the top of his game, the top of anyone's game here. And I always remembered Raging Bull was tremendous, but I had forgotten that it genuinely belongs among the best movies ever made. Easily. I do not say that lightly. It's easily among the best movies ever made. It's just a tour de force. Everything about it's perfect. It's it's fantastic. Hard to watch, but fantastic. 
freaking tastic. So if you've never seen Raging Bull, and if you're like, I don't like sports movies, I don't like boxing movies, neither did Martin Scorsese. He didn't even want to make the movie because he thought boxing was such a stupid sport, and he thought sports movies were such horse shit. But he comes along and makes arguably the best sports movie ever made, and it's it's basically untouchable. So give Raging Bull a watch if you've been waiting, because it is, like I said, I think if I had to tell someone the best piece of acting I've ever seen in a movie, I think it would be Robert De Niro in Raging Bull. He does not go over the top at all. It's totally... It's totally like dialed in from start to finish without chewing scenery, and that is that is tough to do. And I think it speaks to the greatness of Martin Scorsese, honestly, that De Niro did, doesn't go over the top and get unbelievable at any point during this tour de force performance. All right, movies now streaming that I want to recommend for you. I always throw some stuff at you from Netflix and Amazon, but real quick, I wanted to add on Hulu this month. Hulu doesn't always get a bunch of credit for all the movies that they bring out to people but right now they have the exclusive streaming rights to parasite which was the great movie that won best picture at the oscars this year i told you i it was my pick for best picture i hoped that it would win i was thrilled when it did win it was an amazing movie very timely with its themes about you know just the economy and um, you know, the rich getting over on the poor. And it's just a very funny movie, but very dark as well. And uh, just an immediate film that's well made in all f- in all ways. So uh, Parasite is right now on Hulu, and that's the best movie you're going to find streaming right now. So if you have a Hulu subscription, do yourself a favor and sit down with Parasite. I think uh, you're going to really like it. But some uh, a couple movies streaming for you on Netflix right now. Something funny on Netflix from 1999. It is Disney's Tarzan, and uh, this one I had never seen. A couple days ago, uh, every Friday night now, Beth and I watch a movie with our son Emerson, and uh, he's not even two years old yet. But we've just every Friday night we like to watch a movie with him. He gets bored after like a half hour always. But really, it's for Beth and I. We sit and we'll watch like a kids movie that we always liked. But anyway, Tarzan's one I had never seen, so we sat down and watched it. Beth liked it anyway. She had already seen it, but I just never saw it because when it came out in 99, I was like 11 years old, and I was at that point, like, I thought Disney was stupid and for babies, so I just didn't care anymore about Disney. But I was cheating myself because this was a kick-ass movie. I really liked it, and Jane was like 100% my type, you know, just like the sexy, intellectual brunette woman. Um actual woman not like a teenage girl like all the disney girls always are uh but tarzan was you know really cool kick ass i mean uh, as ripped as any disney character has ever been uh, pretty much as naked as any disney character has ever been had the cool animal sidekicks uh great setting you know good villain it was just a, a cool movie awesome soundtrack from phil collins i love tarzan i thought it was fantastic so it's uh streaming on netflix actually not on disney plus right now something serious for you on netflix though great month for dramas on netflix if you're looking for some serious shit to watch and i always recommend serious shit taxi driver is on netflix the matrix is on netflix right now mud which is a great movie from a few years ago minority report is on netflix those are all fantastic choices all movies that i have in my collection that i love but I'm going to give you The Social Network as my pick, actually, for something serious on Netflix from 2010 because that was my pick for the fourth best movie of the entire decade of the 2010s, if you remember a couple episodes ago when I ran those down for you. So I love The Social Network. I think it's uh, 
phenomenal. I think it's right up there with the best stuff David Fincher has ever done, and he's done some of the best movies uh, of recent memory. So uh, give The Social Network a watch if you never got around to it. It's much more than the Facebook movie. Um, it's just a, a stylistic masterpiece, really. All right, moving on to Amazon Prime. If you have a, a Prime video subscription, something funny for you from 1985. It is Clue. Tim Curry leads uh, an amazing cast of funny people in truly one of the funniest movies ever made. This movie, I used to love it on VHS when I was a kid. I'd watch it all the time when I go to my grandma's house. It's got the three different endings, which is classic when it was in theaters that you never knew which ending you would see, but you get to watch all three of them when you watch it now. It's just such a funny, madcap, you know, crazy ass movie. Um, and it's just, you know, the classic, like, Agatha Christie, someone dies when all these people are together in a house and the, everyone has to figure out who it was that killed them. And the answers are always very improbable and impossible to guess. So it, the movie's full of crazy performances. Curry leads the pack. Um, but it, Clue's awesome if you've never seen it. It's endlessly quotable. Beth and I quote it all the time in different ways. Um and I love it. If you never watched Clue, I don't know what you're waiting on. Just sit down with it on a Friday night. You will love this movie. It's hilarious. Uh, that's on Amazon Prime now. Also on Amazon, something serious for you from 2002. I'm going to throw at you The Pianist. It is about as serious as it gets. Don't expect to smile much when you're watching this one. I took a class on Holocaust cinema when I was in college. And the professor of that class, who was really had a great eye for film, but was actually a rabbi, he wasn't like a film guy, he was, he was a rabbi, but he knew a lot about movies, you could tell. He was a great film lover. He said that he considers The Pianist to be the greatest drama ever made about the Holocaust, and the survivors that he's talked to agreed with him. So uh, I think The Pianist is better than Schindler's List. I'll take it any day of the week over it. And uh, remember Adrian Brody? Whatever happened to him? This was back when he was uh, the biggest actor in the world, basically. But it's directed by Roman Polanski, um, and it's Polanski was a is a Holocaust survivor himself. His parents, um, you know, went through it, and he was he was there. So it's uh, when he was young. I mean, he was a kid, but still, he's that's something that's never going to leave him. So the pianist is a very personal movie, and it's uh, a harrowing and beautiful and to totally sad movie. But it's. I think probably the best representation of the Holocaust in a fictional drama. Um, it's not fictional. It's based on a true story, but still it's, it's, you know, you know what I mean? Not a documentary, um, which is the best way to experience the Holocaust on cinema is documentary, but the pianist is the next best thing. So it's a great movie and it's on Amazon right now. If you never did get around to it, it's a beautiful film. All right. That's about going to do it for this edition of the stream police podcast. My friend, I'm glad we got to spend this time together during this brutal uh punishing time to be alive but you know what we're all going to get through it and it's going to be kind of our big bonding moment that we all remember together and we all talk about how we spent the time i think even more than like 9-11 because 9-11 affected all of us but it really affected some people a lot more than others this one has really affected every single one of us no matter where you live no matter if you live in the smallest town in the country to you know the biggest cities uh, you have been affected by this directly, and it has really interrupted your life. So I think we're all going to remember this a lot. It's going to be like the old people who probably used to sit around and talk about their days living in the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression because that affected everyone as well. So, look, we're going to have some good stories to tell and some good things to bond over when we're able to get back together and drink some beers. But until then, 
Thanks for meeting me here on the Stream Police Podcast, and I want to thank uh, my friend Andy Sedlak again as well. Always good to hear from you, my friend. Thank you for contributing to the show, as you always do. Uh, if you want to hit me, reach out to me uh, on email at theclintdavis at gmail.com and hit me uh, on Instagram at Mr. Clint Davis. Andy is there as well on Instagram at Andy Sedlak, and you can email him at sedlakjournal at gmail.com. That's going to do it. We'll talk next time, my friend. Until then, stream on. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.